0: Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Bill's lesson today is in Luke chapter 18, titled, Jesus on Evangelism, part 1. Luke chapter 18. Luke 18. When you study the Bible the way we do, which is taking it apart, going by verse by verse as much as possible, uh, Going from the front of a book to the end of the book, going from the front of the Bible to the end of the Bible, when you do that kind of thing, trying to discern, trying to trying to interpret, trying to to uh, understand what God has for us, it takes it takes quite a while. We've been in Luke now for more than three years, or going on three years, I think, and we're only in chapter 18. And we have been uh, for four weeks. We've been in the end of chapter 17, and now through the middle of chapter 18. And uh, which is fine and good, it, it, with, with one exception, is that in real life when this happened, when Jesus spoke these words, he may have said them in the space of about 30 minutes, these events. And so can you understand how we're missing some of the context here? That It runs together. We, we, we take breaks when the chapters take breaks. You know, there's a chapter 17, then there's a chapter 18. We stop at the end of 17. We don't pick it up until the next day or maybe not till two or three days later and we broke the thing right in the middle of the context of what, the flow of what's happening there. We missed some of the richness of the Scriptures. And so, uh, what, uh, and here, case in point, what you have here at the end of te- chapter 17 is Jesus talking about his second coming, talking about the conditions, talking about the hearts of people and what it's going to be like and how nobody's going to see it. Uh, it's going to be like it was in the days of Noah, like it was in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, everybody eating and drinking and giving in marriage and throwing parties, and the next thing you know, boom, they're gone. And uh, then he goes straight into chapter 18, talking about giving an illustration of this woman who is uh, before this unjust judge and how she continued to come back and saying, give me, uh, give me justice, and uses an illustration how faithful need to be in prayer, praying and expecting his coming. You can't live, you can't know where you're going, I mean, you can't know how to live today until we know where we're going, right? The end needs to be in focus at all times. I, I have to, I, until I know my destination, I can't plan my journey. I, how, how do I journey today if I don't know where my, de- my the, the end isn't in focus? And so we go straight from that into that, and they go straight into what we saw last time, which was this parable of the uh, rich man or the, the Pharisee and the, the uh, tax collector. So it begs the question, and he answers it. Who's going to be in this kingdom? He's coming. His kingdom is coming. We need to be faithful to pray about his kingdom's coming. And then who's going to be in this? And so he gives the illustration of these two people, one who repents and acknowledges his sin, and the other one who doesn't. One has everlasting life, and one doesn't because he thought he was not a sinner. And then straight from that uh, story that Jesus makes up on the spot to, to teach, straight to a life illustration Jesus is approached by a young man. We call him, classically, the rich young ruler. And so we pick up the story here. In chapter 18, verse 18, he gives us an illustration of the story that Jesus just told. The person who thinks he's righteous, thinks he doesn't need forgiveness, thinks he doesn't need grace. Verse 18, a certain ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? There's a huge problem. That question is just... Full of errors. So we're going to talk about that. Uh calling Jesus good unless he thinks he's the Son of God, he can't be good. And Jesus puts him to that point here in the next verse. But what must I do to inherit eternal life? Either you're inherit, either you're in the line of the bloodline or you're not. There's nothing to do. You understand his 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 whole question is just convoluted. <laughs> good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, Why do you call me good? Unless, of course, you think I'm God. So no one is good except God alone. and we're going to also get to that. Did you know that you're bad? You need to know that. So if you're, if you're bad but think you're good, you will never go to God for forgiveness. If, if you never think that you're bad, you don't need God's grace. And, and by the way, heaven isn't for you. Uh, he warns us against that. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. What's, what's your point? and he gets to his question. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. The purpose of the law is to teach us about our sin, not about our righteousness. It's a flashlight. It's a light turning on in a room. So you think the room is clean, but you cleaned it in the dark? You think you're dressed appropriately, but you got dressed in the dark? Turn the light on! The law is the light that shines into our lives. And until the law has been allowed to shine, we think we're fine. Oh, I've kept all those things. This guy has not allowed the light to shine in his life. I've kept all these things since my youth. And Jesus said to him, he puts his finger right on one of the laws he's not keeping, which is the best, biggest one. Have no other God before me. One thing you lack, does it very kindly. Sell all you possess, distribute to the poor. You shall have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. When he heard this, like I said, that's his God. And he's not giving that up. He became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they heard this, they said, Then who can be saved? Because they considered the rich to be the first in line going to go into heaven. And he said, The things that are impossible for men are possible with God. So we're going to spend a couple of Sundays together over this passage because, like I said, there's just a lot to unbox here. But uh, I'm going to warn you today and next time we're together, I'm probably going to be saying some things that might disturb you, and it's not for the sake of disturbing that I'm doing it. It's just because uh, when we're confronted with the truth, sometimes it is disturbing, especially if we've been convinced or believed another way. But I'm not trying to step on your toes, even though I'm not sorry if, you know if I do. It just is what it is. Again, it's not my words, it's his words. So let me just start out with this, and it may may or may not be controversial for you, but it needs to be said. It is impossible for us to bring someone to faith in Christ. Not possible. It is impossible. It is impossible for we ourselves to bring a person to the place of repentance. It is impossible through human manipulation or coaxing for us to bring a person to the place where they truly trust Christ. Just laying that out in front of you here because it's going to be a theme that we pursue, like I said, this week and next week. I say that because because the Scriptures are real plain on this. Romans 10. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. So it doesn't matter what you do doesn't matter how you do it necessarily if they have not heard and confirmed the word of christ in their lives by believing it there'll be there is no faith i don't care what they do i don't care how they come this guy is the perfect seeker coming to the right person asking the right question and yet he goes away unsaved how did jesus mess this up he didn't guy wasn't ready to be saved. His heart wasn't in the right place. Because until you've crossed the threshold of not just, he's heard the word, he's just not put his faith in it. Putting your faith in what Christ has said, there will be no salvation. There is no way to change it. Paul says a similar thing in the first chapter of Romans. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's the message of the truth that God has sent his son Jesus to pay for our sins, hung him on a cross. He became a man so that he could pay the penalty and exchange our hell for his everlasting life. That message. I'm not ashamed of it, he says, for it, it, notice, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Not our presentation of it, not the vehicle that carries it there, our church, our ministries, whatever it is. Those things have absolutely no power over it. It is strictly the message. For the Jew first, notice, and also to the Greek, he says there. But we've gotten away from this in our evangelical churches. So somehow we've lost faith in the power of the Word of God and its ability to, to convert a sinner to a saint, and we placed our faith in our ability to present that message. So we no longer trust the message, we trust the vehicle that gets it there, be it a church or a ministry or a pastor or our, our well constructed, uh, not that we shouldn't, presentations of the gospel. We focus on the presentation of the word instead of the word itself. We focus on the, our education and degrees of our leaders as the key to success. It's going to be a great church because that pastor's got a great education. He's got a good head on his shoulders. Really? I can't find where that doesn't say that here. I Anything mean, you about your pastor or ministry or how nice your stained glass is, it did not change anybody's lives. I mean it's nice. I mean, you know, I'd rather have it than not have it, but where 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 is our faith focused on? Again, we've gotten away from this. And we focus on other stuff. We focus on our worship styles. You know, traditional, contemporary. That's the things that matter. We get mad about stuff like that. We divide our churches. It's so dumb. Doesn't matter a bit. Worship doesn't change anybody. Now, it may bring them to the place where they'll hear the gospel, but I'm telling you, nothing about worship here, is there? Word of God, the gospel of God, faith in that very thing. We focus on our curb appeal as churches. We put so much emphasis on how our churches look. Our best foot forward, right. Worse? I'm not saying it shouldn't look nice. I'm just saying, where's our faith? That doesn't save anyone. Anybody can create a nice building. We focus on our minister and how he might look on a billboard. Have you noticed these guys? And, and, and let me just say, I, I'm, I'm incensed when I see some preacher on a billboard. And maybe it's just because my face isn't up there. I don't know. I'm just <laughs> telling y'all. I'm not asking for that in any way. But it, there's, there's a part of me that just says, I don't like that. And here's one of the reasons why I like that. He's always, all the preachers aren't good looking. <laughs> but you only see good looking ones on the sign. We got some ugly ones. <laughs> you never see that guy, ever. We got an ugly preacher, okay, take down the billboard now. We got to wait until you get a pretty preacher up there or something. You know, it, It's amazing to me. We, we focus on our minister and on how well he presents our, his message and that it's encouraging and non-offensive and not to mention short. We consider that, that's the key. You got that? That's going to be a great church. And I will say this that, that might be a full church, but that's not what saves anybody. Maybe full of lost people. All right, you know, you got, a, you got one of the best lost people you could ever come across here <laughs> coming to Jesus asking the ultimate question. An honorable, uh, law abiding, God's law abiding person who wouldn't want a person like that a member of their church, but he's not saved, he's not converted. He's coming for the wrong reasons. We, we, we see all these things and we put them up front in our churches and, and we see these things as key, but they, there was none of these things in the New Testament church and they turned the world upside down. Didn't have any of this. They didn't have stained glass. Didn't, stat, didn't have pews, all the stuff. We, didn't have contemporary, I don't know, traditional uh, services. They didn't have rock star preachers. You They know. didn't have any of that. They were very effective though our conditions are the same as that of ezekiel. ezekiel was sent on a very unusual mission to raise the dead. remember the story? takes him into the valley of dry bones. do you know that's our mission? the mission of the church is nothing short other than raise the dead. anybody here know how to raise the dead? me neither. Well, maybe you know, but you can't do it. And if, if anything, you, t- you can tell me that you know by telling me that you can't do it. Because I, if there was anybody that knew he couldn't do it, it was certainly his equal. All right, we have a dead, dead ministry. We minister to the dead. Our outreach is to dead people. Lost is, sounds like they're awake and they can find their way. No, they're, they're dead. They're really dead. They're dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, outside of Christ, in which you previously walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So they're not just dead. Satan is standing on their grave. That is the people that we are supposed to bring to faith in Christ. Can't be done in ourselves. And it won't matter how nice the windows are, and the carpet is, and the worship is, that doesn't change the deadness of the people we're trying to reach. Again, it's very sobering and very illustrative when we consider Ezekiel's ministry. Here's Ezekiel chapter 37 of that book. The hand of the Lord was upon me, right? Remember the story? Brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, set me down in the middle of the valley and it was all full of bones and he had me pass among them all around and behold there were many on the surface of the valley behold they were very dry i don't know if there's you know if a wet bone is better than a than a dry bone right just it's just the point is they were as dead as dead gets actually there's 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 more dead than that but we'll talk about that in a second then he said to me son of man can these bones live well not as far as we're concerned i mean what do you have i don't have anything what are we going to do they're dead bones can these bones live and and very good answer you can tell this guy's been around the block with god a few times lord you know smart answer of course in the back of heads you say no way but, I mean, God spoke everything into existence from nothing. And so, certainly, God can say or not say whether this person, these bones, uh, live. And, of course, he's, he's told something very very unusual to do. I mean, there's no genetics here. There's no reincarnation. There's no, none of that. Uh, just straight up notice, prophesy. How could that be a solution? Prophesy not anything but what I say to you. Say to them... That's all he's got to do is repeat these words. Shouldn't have worked the way we think. Where's his backup music? <laughs> right? Where's his steeple? Crying out loud! You got his stained glass, his 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 iPad. I mean, I don't know how he could have possibly raised the dead just simply speaking God's words. Hmm. We've forgotten that, haven't we? So I prophesied, right? So I prophesied. O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. You shall know that I am the Lord. And so I prophesied as I was commanded, prophesied by, to the breath. So I prophesied as he commanded me. Doesn't change any words, doesn't add or subtract any words, I certainly has no confidence in what he can do. I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet in exceedingly Great army. Like I said, it shouldn't have worked. By any measure of ministry we have today, it shouldn't have worked. Where, where's his backup music? Where, where, where is his stained glass installed? Where is his degree in resurrecting the dead? We've got to have an educated preacher, don't we? Where's his degree? Where's his credentials? Where's his overhead display? How did it, it shouldn't have worked according to the measures of ministry we have today. This thing shouldn't have worked. Again, the Bible teaches us that the message and not the messenger is what brings people to faith in Christ. The messenger, it really doesn't matter. The vehicle that gets the message there is really, it doesn't matter. But we get very upset about the vehicle, like I said, the color of the carpet, the type of stained glass, the type of music, the type of preacher... All the kind of stuff that the Bible has absolutely says nothing doesn't matter. Doesn't even matter one iota. Because, again, we're dealing with the dead. We're dealing with the dead. Matthew 13, Jesus gives a great illustration. Talk about dead. He talks about the sower that goes out and sow into certain types of soils. Now, there's nothing deader than dirt. As dry as dry bones are dead, but dirt is deader than dead. Because that's what happens. If you leave the dry bones there long enough, they, they turn into dirt. So it's the final stage. Dirt is as dead as it could possibly ever be. And he tells the story of this one who goes out to sow, the, the farmer that went out to sow it. Of course, you know the story. Some fell in the past, some fell among the thorny places, some fell among the rocks, and some fell on good soil, still dead. Good or bad, I mean, soil is just as dead as it could possibly be. It's the seed, right? It's the word. It's the word that's planted that makes the difference. And the seed either sprouts or it doesn't, based upon the soils, right? But we have no control over the seed. We have no control over the soil. But nobody asks the obvious questions that we are, seem to think are so important today. Is Where's the qualifications of the sower? Where's his resume? Where's his degree in seed sowing? How can we be sure... That he can put the right spin on the seed as it flies. Because, you know, if it doesn't hit the soil just right, it won't sprout, right? Of course not. It's crazy. Where's his, like I said, backup music? Was he dressed presentably? Says nothing of that. Because it doesn't matter. Not even a little bit. Paul says this about himself and Apollos. Great preachers. It's using the same idiom. I planted, Apollos watered, but God caused the growth. It's impossible, impossible for us to cause the growth. If Paul and Apollos couldn't do it, forget it. You're not going to add one thing to it. We will subtract from it, though, if we don't give it away. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything that's what I want to, you know, put underneath the, the, the guy with the nice cap teeth and hair plugs, you know, on the sign down there. He's a good-looking guy, but he's not anything, because so this is the Word of God that causes the growth. God causes the growth. God is everything. God and His message, the vehicle doesn't matter. Now, there's got to be a vehicle. He has called us. He sent us, right? Go and make disciples. We're responsible to go, but don't take any responsibility for the growth, that stuff is only up to God. Only God does that. It's impossible, again, for us to bring someone to faith in Christ. Impossible for us to manipulate them in some human way that coaxes them to trust Jesus. It is impossible. Impossible. It's solely the work of the message and the one who sent us to present that message. So now we're ready to get to the rich young ruler. That is an introduction. The rich young ruler is the perfect seeker, is he not? And we have his story here in Luke. We also have it in Matthew. We have it in Mark. Three different uh, views on the same circumstance. And they each fill in details that are going to be important for us to fully understand what's happening here. Mark adds something here that I think is important for us to consider. He says at the beginning of this story, as he, Jesus, was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him. Luke doesn't include that. Knelt before him. Now, of course... And then he asked the most important question, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? If we didn't know the rest of the story, we would assume, of course, this guy got saved. Of course he did. I mean, he's, he wants it. He's eager about it. He's humbling himself. He's coming to the right person, the Son of God. He's asking the most important question. How did this not end up in... He's the perfect person to be led to salvation. Why didn't this work? Again, in our modern think of evangelism, he's the guy we're looking for. He, he's, he's everything. And, and he's, he's got money. You know? Let's, let's get him in. What's the hold up? How did Jesus mess this one up? Hey, Jesus should go to our Bible schools. He would have had this guy, you know, voted on this Sunday, baptized the next Sunday, in a committee the next Sunday. How did Jesus mess this up? Up. Well, we're going to find out, again, this is the Son of God. The title of this sermon next Sunday is Jesus on Evangelism. Jesus on Evangelism. Jesus is the evangelist, not you, not me. Jesus is the missionary, not you, not me. Salvation is a work of God and the Son of God, not your work. You get to be blessed to be used, but it's not about you. This is the work of God redeeming people to himself through his son. It's a complete work of God. So when Jesus lays out, if you will, a demonstration of evangelism, whether it goes right or wrong, boy, should we be paying attention. So he doesn't do several things with this guy that we would have very richly, very quickly done. He doesn't ask him, first of all, notice, to accept him into his heart or into his life. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. Why doesn't he say that? Well, of course, he's the son of God. He knows the conditions of this man's heart. But, but, but also, accept Jesus into your heart, quote, unquote. Accept Jesus into your life, quote, unquote, are not phrases in the Bible anywhere. I mean, I understand the reason why we have these. We're trying to explain salvation and what it means. But, but in, sometimes in our use of language, we confuse sometimes trying to get to a, to a, to a good end we add some bad stuff along the way. Like, for instance, accept Jesus into your life. I thought the person was dead in their trespasses and sins. Aren't they? Yeah? Jesus loved him. That Nothing kept him back. You were dead in your offenses and sins in which you previously walked. See, you don't have a life for Jesus to come into as a lost person. We've forgotten that. They're they're dead. And they're going to have to hear the voice of the Son of God. Like Lazarus in the tomb. They're dead and they stink. Until they hear the voice of the Son of God, not your voice, not the voice of the church, not the vehicle, however, whatever that message is that's irrelevant. The message of God Himself, until they hear it and place their faith in it, there will be no life in them. There cannot be. He doesn't tell to it's seven in his life because there is no life in them. Again, uh, Jesus underscores this. John chapter 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, the one, notice the process. Who hears my words and believes him who sent me. That's where the power is. Hear his words. Combine it with faith. Has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed from where he was, which is where? death into life. He was not alive before that. So there's not a life for you to accept Jesus into. He doesn't tell him that. And again, I I don't necessarily know we need to change that language per se, but we certainly need to change the way we think about it. We certainly do. He he doesn't give him, interesting, he doesn't give him, we have Jesus, like I said, on evangelism. Jesus has several evangelism encounters on -on one-on-one encounters. This is a rich young ruler. We had another Another lady by the name we call her the, the woman at the well. Remember that evangelism encounter went completely different. He doesn't tell this man what he clearly says to the woman at the well. As she comes, she's aware of her sin. She's married to four guys and living with a fifth one, and Jesus is clear to point that out. She's very aware that she's a sinner. And Jesus, because of that, tells her things he doesn't tell this guy who doesn't think he's a sinner. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called the Christ, and when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And just flat out, Jesus says, I am he. Doesn't say that to this guy. Why not? Like I said before, the guy doesn't want a savior. He already has one. It's him. He just wants Jesus to tweak his resume a little bit. You want to make sure that as you're shuffling on out of here that you got it all in line. But he's already his own Savior. He doesn't need Jesus to be his Savior. This woman knew her her boat was sunk. Again, it's it's not the person who's good. It's the person who knows that they're not who receives salvation. Do you know that you're not? Do you know that you're a sinner bound for hell, apart from the intervention of God in your life? Do you know that? That God considers you wicked and an enemy of his? It is so critical that you know that. Because you'll be just like this guy. Jesus can't even tell him that he's the Savior. He can't. Because the guy doesn't think he needs a Savior. He's already got one of those. He's already got one. Doesn't give, he doesn't give him the words because, because, well, he's the same as the previous, we studied this last week, the, the Pharisee, right? He's just like this guy. He stood praying to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers and crooked and adulterers and even like this tax collector. He doesn't need a Savior, this guy never says, please forgive me. Please have mercy or grace on me. Hell is going to be filled with religious good people who don't think they need a Savior. This man, one of those guys. He doesn't, Jesus doesn't lead him in the sinner's prayer. He doesn't sign him up for catechism or discipleship classes. He doesn't follow him or beg him to change his mind. Interesting. Interesting, just leaves him with the word. There's the law. Because he hasn't dealt with the law yet. He still thinks, even looking at the law, which is only there to reveal our sin, that he's not a sinner. So even, how, how could he ever want a Savior until he knows that he's a sinner? So he's got to deal with that, and so Jesus just leaves him with it. So we have the testimony of the Scriptures in front of a person, and that is all that they need. And either they'll listen to it or they won't. Either the seed sprouts or it doesn't. We have no control over the soil and no control over the seed. Jesus performs, doesn't perform a miracle to win him over either. He doesn't. If you've been with us very long, you know this is a horse, a dead horse that I like to beat. I've harped on this, and, and it needs to be revisited just in a light of this passage because miracles don't save people. They never did, never will. They don't. That might be shocker to you. I'm not trying to shock you. Again, that's not my point. My point is to be faithful to the Scriptures. Miracles don't save people. How do we know that? Because the Scripture is very clear. So faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Not miracles of Christ, not miracles of the church. In fact, we know that miracles didn't work because he committed, performed more miracles than anyone ever did on multiples of uh, ten. He literally banned illness from all of Israel. And and by the end of his three-year ministry, what did they say about him? Crucify him. Because miracles don't produce faith. Miracles move a person emotionally. They can move them to the place, but this is the threshold you have to cross. Hearing the word of Jesus, placing your faith in the word of Jesus. So how many miracles did Judas see? Walking on the water, feeding the 5,000, raising the dead. Miracle after miracle, deliver from demons. He even went out two by two, sent by Jesus, and they performed miracles on behalf of Christ in the name of Christ. Healed people, uh, delivered from demons. even Miracles even worked through him by the power of God, and yet he betrayed him. He betrayed him because miracles don't save people. Here's Abraham on the topic. The parable of the Lazarus and the rich man. And Lazarus is in the bosom of Abraham and the rich man is in fiery torment. And he says to Abraham, please send Lazarus back. Please send him back to tell my brothers so that they will not come to this horrible place. And notice what Abraham says. Here's a word on miracles. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, that's the word of God. They will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. You bought pull out the biggest miracle. People won't listen. They will not be changed here. They'll be wowed. They'll be amazed. They'll be moved, but not to heaven. No, they won't. And I say all that to say, isn't that kind of what we seek when we think about our churches the way we do in modern terms? We concern ourselves so greatly with the music and with the lights and with the architecture and with the pretty preachers and the skilled oration in all these things, isn't that somehow kind of produce a wow effect, a miracle on our behalf? To wow people? More people will come if we do this. I'm not against that. But are they crossing the threshold into heaven? That's what we've been sent to do. Numbers don't matter to God. Conversion is what matters. We seek to wow people like a miracle would, but that's not what changes them. Again, He doesn't follow him. Jesus doesn't, this rich man. He doesn't beg him to change his mind. Like I said, the seed, either it sprouts or it doesn't. And you and our responsibility is to scatter the seed, but we have no power over what happens to it. And we have no control over the soil because who can raise the dead, right? Who can raise the dead? Here's, uh, I think, a great quote, and I'm not sure what preacher said this, but Boy, does it resonate with me. He said, I remain unpersuaded that any theological movement can dramatically affect the course of the world why its own leaders undermine the integrity of its charter documents. So while we have these great movements and we have these massive churches, yet at the same time we really don't preach the Word of God, which is the only thing that converts a sinner. We, we, or we, we twist it and change it into something that it doesn't say... And, oh, we got big churches, but of no real effect to the world. Uh, the evidence is there for sure. The Bible stands impressively unshaken by the fury of the destruction, destructive critics while the non-believing world itself, marked for destruction, urgently needs to hear its singular message of salvation. That's what we got to do. That's where our faith has to be. That's where our work has to be, that's where our confidence has to be, that's where the things in the order of things that matter have to be, and we can't lose that focus. I ask you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me as we think about these things. God, we're thankful, and we ask you to forgive us for placing our faith in things that don't work, things that don't matter. Forgive us, God, for becoming so concerned about the things that really don't change lives. Help us, God, to keep it in perspective. And it's going to start by saying, Your word is it. Faith in your word is it. May our confidence be correctly placed, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptistchurch.org.